I'm standing uh, on the Mount of Olives, taking in one of the most remarkable views probably in the world of the old city of Jerusalem. John McCarthy takes an evocative journey across the Middle East. We are surrounded by increasing numbers of people. Oh, and there's even a camel <laughs> with a woman looking a terrified <laughs> sitting on top of it. Considering the vast changes to the physical and political landscape, since the Prince of Wales made the trip in 1862. Before the wall, we can go from here to Ramallah, just five minutes. Now, we, we cannot go to Jerusalem. In a prince's footsteps, next Monday to Friday at 1.45 on BBC Radio 4. And there's more information on the Radio 4 website where you can see the photographs from the Prince of Wales tour of 1862 alongside recent pictures taken by John McCarthy. Now on BBC Radio 4, the journalist and broadcaster John Ronson presents the last in a series looking at the human condition with Johnson on Pride in My Work. The writer Graham Linehan has a moral conundrum he likes to try out on people. You're walking through a jungle and you come across a little hut and you knock on the door and the door opens and it's an ageing but still lucid Hitler. You definitely recognise it's Hitler, he's kept a moustache and everything. And he recognises you and he says, oh, I love your show. And the moral conundrum is, do you turn him in? Right? So I kind of... You know, I have actually tried that on people in the past, and you can definitely separate the world between those who understand that and those who don't. And those who understand it are those venal, (laughs) desperate, pathetic people like me, who, you know, I completely judge everybody on whether they like me. Yeah. Or your work, which amounts to the same thing. Graham says the likes of Twitter has meant he gets unsolicited reviews of his work, like the IT crowd and Father Ted, from viewers all the time, and frequently not nice ones. They seem to think that all of us writers and people doing creative things sit around criticising each other's work like we're, you know, Hemingway and Fitzgerald, you know. They were very close friends who had a certain kind of relationship. Like, I wouldn't be friendly enough with you, John, even though we know each other very well, to expand on why I didn't like a particular chapter in your, in your book or something. Not that, I'm not <laughs> saying I did. I'm not saying I didn't. See how quick your eye, the flash of fear in your eyes. As you know, it's only the negative stuff that jumps out. You will remember a negative comment forever. Like the woman at a party who came up to me and when she heard I wrote Father Ted, she said, not much in it for women, is there? And since then, I have had so many comebacks to that line. Like what? Oh, uh, not for humorless women, no. If I had said that, I would have had a nice life. (laughs) But everything since then has been regret that I didn't manage to say that in time. (laughs) I tell you my worst one. When Joel just turned two, my son, a week earlier, Mm -hmm. and we were at a hotel and some bigger boys about the age of five, pushed him off his bike and one of them sort of had his arm around his neck. And the parents of the bigger boys 
looked over all kind of amused and said, oh, look at our, mm. look at our children, uh, mm-hmm. you know, having fun. Yes, yes. And I kind of screamed at the kid, you know, stop that! And I screamed so loudly that everybody, like, it all became like a sort of drama and all the parents were like then surrounding the kids. You're the frightening... Well, I, I, I actually did become the frightening one because I said to the kid, I saw what you did! <laughs> you brat! <laughs> Um, so the parents then went steady on, you know, to me. They said, "Oh," they said. And in fact, my wife, I think, at that moment said, "Oh," like that. And one of the parents said, "Well, we don't know who started it." Wow. And I said, "My son is two. How old are your children?" That's what I said. Now it's plagued me that what I didn't say was. My son only turned two a couple of days ago. My son's basically one. (laughs) Which you felt improved your case, yes? Improved it so much. (laughs) Graham Linehan. An interesting looking man has moved into our street. I invite him over for coffee. I'm John, I say. I'm Sam, he says. We look at each other. So what do you do? I ask. I'm an actor, he says. Really? I say. What have you been in? He tells me. That's great, I say. I pause and smile expectantly. Okay, I think. Ask me what I do. I love your clock, he says. I'm looking for a clock exactly like that. I scowl to myself. Oh, I'm sure he'll ask me what I do another time, I think. I walk away feeling discombobulated. Having a surfeit of pride in our work wraps its tendrils around us and can sometimes affect our whole lives. A few years ago, a radio producer from Copenhagen called Anna Thaulow lost her grandfather, Kai, to cancer. Well, I remember him as a really nice guy, a really warm and loving and funny grandfather. He was really charming and he could play instruments and he did lots of magic tricks and funny stuff for us kids. What kind of Um, magic tricks did he do? He could make small things disappear. And he had a very happy marriage. Yeah, as a child, I saw them as a happy couple. They were really kind of cute together. They talked a lot about how they met each other. Outside Copenhagen, there's this park. My grandma was very young. She was only like 13 when she met my grandfather. I think he was 17 or maybe 18. He was a bit older. And when did he die? He died in 2005. And he had cancer, didn't he? He had cancer, yes. But he wasn't, like, ill, but he had cancer. Do you think he knew that he didn't have lung? I do think he knew because he did have one time where his lungs didn't function. That was a couple of months before he died, but then he was, like, really ill in the hospital. So there he must have been, like, a little bit frightened. He must have thought about it. And these questions about whether he knew he was going to die have a, a relevance to the story because of what happened next. Yeah, definitely. And it started with your father going into the attic to clean out his stuff? Yeah, after my grandfather died, 
we found out that he had a lot of stuff in a room in his apartment. It was just a big mess. We were like, okay, he could have just taken care of this, and he just left it to us somehow. My father found like notes, for example, for Christmas, where my grandfather had been writing about who should have what kind of gifts, like Anna, me, I should have a little horse or something. And then he found a box of cassettes. And what was the very first thing on the very first cassette that you put in? On the very first tape, there was um, a child singing. I think it was my sister's voice when we were little. And then his voice was there, and he was whistling a lot. He always whistled because he was very, like, a happy guy. And my grandmother had started to cry because his voice was there. And that was really weird also for me that his voice was suddenly in the room because he's dead, you know. Hello. Hello, hello. I got all the tapes with me and I started to systematically listen to them one by one. What else did you hear? I found out that he had been taping scenes from my family's life, like Easter lunch or Christmas lunch. <laughs> like him and my grandmother drinking coffee and reading the newspapers. Different things from everyday life. I think he did it kind of secretly. He would just turn on the machine when you were having a lunch and he yeah, would yeah. just he'd just record the conversation. Yeah, because definitely he did it secretly for us and I think also for my grandmother. That's really strange. Why would he do that? I still really don't know. <laughs> and then Anna came across a cassette with a sticker that had the word Alice written on it. Anna didn't know anyone called Alice. I was very curious about this tape, so I listened to it. It was like country songs, like American country songs. She played the guitar. She wasn't like a great guitar player, but she had a nice voice. And she sang also uh, in Denmark. We can sometimes, when people get really drunk, they sing like songs for each other. Mm. And she sang some of those too, like drinking music. The last tapes I was listening to was a tape where I found out that he was in Alice's home. At that point, I knew her voice because I've heard it on other tapes, so I could hear that she was there. And the son was there, I guess, because there was a son, too. I could hear his voice, too. And they were chatting and drinking soda. It sounds like they're, like, having a good time. And then the phone rings. And it's my grandmother who calls him in the house. And she wants him to come home. He says he's very busy, he's doing the papers, he's on the office. He won't be home until later. He knew that she was going to call, I guess, and he knew that he was going to lie. 
and then he's recording it. Okay. Hi, hi. So who was the woman and the boy? The woman and the boy was Alice and Ken. And Alice and Ken was his other wife and another son and like a another family. And he uh, had no idea? My family didn't have any idea. And his father managed to track down Ken. He had no idea about any of it either. It was all a big shock to him. The secret taping, the other family... Alice was dead now, and the two men talked about getting together and maybe becoming a kind of extended family. But Ken didn't seem so keen, so it never happened. They coincidentally met on a tango course, and that is also very strange. Well, they were both on the same tango course. Is tango like a big deal in Denmark, or do you think it's like one of those things like when identical twins are separated at birth and it turns out 30 years later that they wear the same jacket? Well, you get that kind of thoughts, because it's not a big thing, not at all. So your grandfather gave them both possibly a genetic love of the tango. (laughs) It's really weird. And so Anna has had to decide how to feel about her grandfather now. I don't really judge him anymore. In the beginning, I was a bit sad and a bit angry because, you know, we all felt like we were a bit left behind or that he had so many secrets for us. That was a bit shocking. When we were trying to understand all those things, of course, we read all the letters. And what we did find out was that those two women were actually really desperate to be with him. They were like, oh, don't ever leave me. If you leave me, I'll die. And, you know, that was the tone of the letters. And it was like similarly for both the women. So at some point, he also did a great job. So it wasn't just him. It was like a whole construction somehow or structure. When you read the love letters, did you feel slightly sympathetic towards him that he had two really needy women he had to then deal with. Yeah, somehow I did, because it was, like, really hardcore. (laughs) There was really a pressure. It was like, if I won't get a child, I'll get really, really ill, and I'll get unhappy my whole life, and I'll just go (laughs) jumping out the window, you know. They were both saying it. You must have felt like a ball in a pinball machine. Yeah, yeah, so it's not like it was like a piece of cake. It was a hard job somehow. But he stuck to it. Do you think he left them knowing you would find them? Sometimes I think that he did, because it was all just so um, exposed somehow. And there must have been some kind of decision behind that, I guess. And maybe he was also some weird way proud of how he did it, because he managed to do that in 50 years. And he didn't mix up names, he didn't you know, tell anyone. He was there almost every day, both places. So it could have been that he left these tapes uh, because he was proud, uh, or it was a kind of posthumous confession. Yeah. Or maybe in between, both. Well, one is pride and the other is shame. Yeah. But I guess those two things can yeah. can go along concurrently. Yeah, I guess so too. Anna Thaulow. 
I'm at the shops with my wife Elaine when I bump into my new neighbour Sam. Sam, I say. Hi, he says. Oh, I'm sorry, I've forgotten your name. John, I say. And this is Elaine. Sam's an actor. Are you going to be in anything soon? A few things, he says. That's interesting, I say. Ask me what I do, I think. This is a good local shop, I say. It's especially handy when you work from home like I do. He wanders off. He's so self-absorbed, I hiss to Elaine. He's refusing to ask me what I do. I'll tell you who's self-absorbed, Elaine hisses back. You. Talk about desperately trying to steer the conversation to yourself. I'll tell you who's self-absorbed, I hiss. You. You like the fact that my work pays for the groceries, but you don't like me talking about my work. You want the wheat, but not the chaff. Well, I'm sorry, but sometimes you can't have the wheat without the chaff. You're all chaff, Elaine hisses. All chaff. The poet Luke Wright is all chaff too in his attempts to get people he admires to become interested in his work. Like the time he fell in love with a band called Art Brute. Art Brute. Art Brute, yeah. Who were, were amazing. I love them. And I, I hadn't been into music for a long time and it was just very, very exciting. And we thought we'd go and watch them. But this is when Pride Goes Bad because I thought I wasn't happy just to be a fan of this new band like I would have been when I was 15. I kind of thought, wouldn't it be cool if they also liked my stuff and then I can go on tour with them? And so instead of just going and paying 25 quid to watch this gig, I got myself on the bill. I can tell that disaster is looming because whenever you care too much about whether somebody likes you, it will always go wrong. They'll never like you. Yeah. Yeah. I remember there was a publisher called Peter Strauss, who was a really important publisher. Every time I met him, I sort of stumbled and stammered, and I got into a real kind of rut about it. It became a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's like, okay, here comes Peter Strauss. I'm going to be inept. <laughs> and sure enough, I was inept. And then one time, I was at this really fancy party at the uh, Wallace Collection in London. It's that big conservatory with a big fountain in the middle of the room and it was a big literary event. And I walked in, you had Doris Lessing was there and all these really big people and Peter Strauss was there. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to break this jinx. I'm going to walk over to him. I'm going to go, hello, Peter. He's going to go, hello. And we'll have a conversation. It'll be fine. So I walked towards him and fell in the fountain. (laughs) And, um, And then all these like authors were just sort of standing around watching me in the fountain and by the end of the night people were saying to me did you hear that someone fell in the fountain (laughs) Luke loved art brutes so much he wanted them to know him and respect him he found out that they were headlining a small festival in southern England so he called the organisers and got himself booked as the compare turned up, I did my first comparing set, I think there was about five sets and Art Brute was going to be the last one because they were headlining and the first one went well, and the whole thing was just feeling like I'd pulled it off, like it was just this great thing, it was this brilliant fluke but with each set it got harder and harder 
to be heard above the crowd. As the crowd grew, the crowd was, you know, 500 people at first when I was doing well, then like 1,000, then like 2,000. So you're, you're up to So you're I'm up to, up to like third. the third set. And, and it's, after, all, it's sort of okay so It's far. sort of okay. And I went backstage and um, spoke to the sound manager. And I think like a couple of people are throwing bottles. I mean, people always do that at festivals anyway. And he went, look, we can't have that. You know, you need to control that crowd because, you know, art brutes, people don't want bottles being chucked to their gear. And I suddenly... You just, have to control that crowd. Well, when he says, well, you have to control, there's 2,000 drunk people. I suddenly felt very scared and a long way from home. And I went on stage for my fourth set, bearing in mind that I think I'm bringing a mark brute on my fifth. And I started doing a poem. Someone chucked a bottle at me. It hit me in the head, but it distracted me. And I forgot my poem. And everyone's, like, laughing at me and jeering at me. And it's about to carry on when the mic went dead. And I looked over to the sound manager, and he's, like, giving me the beheading sign. Get off, get off, get off. And what, had he cut you up? He cut me off because he thought there was going to be a riot. And when the crowd realised what had happened, that I'd been cut off, this like low, howling jeer broke out across the cow shed. It was just like everything that had gone wrong that week for them, every traffic jam, every sort of ticking off from their boss, every cup of tea gone cold, that was my fault. And because I was in stage, they could legitimately hate me. So I went backstage and I said to James, I said, look, oh, sorry about that. I'll keep it really short. Next one, I'll just get Artbrute on, no poetry. And he went, no, mate, I can't let you go out there. I, I just, I, I could feel like tears welling up. But I thought, no, can't do that now. You can't cry. This is pathetic. So suck it up. Fine. I went, OK, I'm just going to go out and watch the gig. And they went, no, we can't let you walk out the front because that bloke will start on you and there'll be a riot. That's a bad gig when the security guards are keeping you away from the audience to protect you from being physically yeah, harmed. Yeah, it's bad. It's bad, but it gets worse. I decided to make a run for it. So I tried to run past the security guards, at which point they grabbed me and forced me to the ground. And my face, my jeans ripped, my face hit the ground, I had dust all in my face. And I looked up and for the first time saw the whole of Art Brook that evening, <laughs> who I want to be mates with, don't forget, want to be equals with, looking down at me as if to say... What on earth are you doing? It was just the lowest point of my entire career. So what did you do? I met up with my mate John and watched the gig. And the song they opened on was We Formed a Band, which is the first track I ever heard of theirs, and it brought back the memory of listening to them six months earlier in my living room with John and getting really excited about it, and it just all hit me tears came and I just started crying and I was crying for all the people I'd let down the gig for Art Brute but mostly for my stupid proud self who got myself in the situation I could have bought a £25 ticket to this gig but I thought I was better than that and look where it got me Luke Wright It's Christmas and I've invited my new neighbour, Sam, around. What a lot of Christmas cards you've got, he says. Yes, I think. I have had a lot of Christmas cards and I haven't sent any. It means they really count. For none of these people, this was an obligation. It's only when you don't send any Christmas cards do you learn how truly loved you are. I look at Sam. Ask me what I do, I think. He's looking at my Christmas cards. 
Maybe, I think, he'll pick one up, realise it's from a notable person and ask me what I do. Sam's arm is hovering near the Christmas cards. Do it, I think. He picks one up, reads the inscription, puts it back, sits on the sofa and drinks his coffee. I nonchalantly wander over to the bookshelves and casually pick up the card. It reads, Happy Christmas from everyone at the NatWest Advantage Premier team. Damn, I think. I usually chuck the corporate ones away, Sam says. The writer Helen Keane looked set to have a brilliant career. She went to Cambridge, did very well, felt proud of her academic accomplishments, but instead ended up temping in Hammersmith. Then she saw an ad seeking recruits for MI5. I had a phone interview and then they got me to go into the building, you know, the, the well, Thames building. The, the actual big, MI5 building. Yeah, and they were just kind of whisking me in just into these very featureless rooms and then I had some more tests there and a lot of interviews. The people that you met, the people who were giving you tests and mm. interviews, if you saw them on the tube, would you think they work for MI5? No, that's the thing. They're really into this idea that you have to be incredibly boring, but not in a sort of covert ninja kind of hiding. We're just in a very boring you can't take your library books back late kind of way. I've got to say, Helen, for people who don't know what you look like, it's coming over in the way that you're talking, you're not somebody who I would immediately associate with MI5. No. Like me, you kind of look like a um, Quentin Blake illustration. <laughs> you know, who knows? you're no. those spooks. No. OK, so you're in the interview. Everybody lies on their CV. Everybody puts things out that aren't true. The lie that Helen put on her CV was that she had once lived in Turkey. Because I just thought, that's the only place I've been since I graduated. I went for a couple of weeks travelling around Turkey, so I'll just say that I've been living in Turkey. So you said that you've been living in Turkey? Yes. And it was a complete lie? Yeah. You'd just been on holiday? Yeah, I've been on holiday there, yeah. Uh, For how long? Two weeks. And you told them that you'd been living in Turkey? For quite a few months, yeah. Did you say that you could speak Turkish? Yes, that was... a pretty big mistake looking back and you really did you yeah. said this you yeah, yeah. you sat there in mi5 yes. headquarters well, i put it on the form you see and they said oh yes and of course you speak some turkish and i said oh well obviously you just pick it up don't you when you when you live there for several months you just pick it up don't you why i think i just thought something really needed to change about my life and you know i was quite academic at school and i got on to cambridge which was really exciting and i thought oh, this is going to be really good and then i was just doing this really awful temp job Obviously, I really wanted to impress them and I didn't want to be like, oh, well, yeah, I've just been doing a temp job. I work down in Hammersmith, an oil company that does engineering parts as well, and I do their photocopy. I mean, it just seemed incredibly boring. And no one's going to check, you know, it's not like anyone's going to know. No one's really going to care, are they? Well, there is MI5. You assume that they do background checks. Well, I didn't. You see, that's the thing. It didn't occur to me. At what point did it dawn on you that you were really making a mistake? Right up until they said to me, can you give us the addresses that you lived at? I genuinely thought I was going to get away with it. And then they sort of said, oh yeah, we've got to kind of check all the addresses and speak to people that you knew when you were living in Turkey. And then I just had that awful, you know, it feels like cold water going down your spine. What did you say? I said, yes, of course, the thing about Turkey, as you would know if you'd been living there for a while like I have, is a lot of earthquakes 
there are a lot of earthquakes. So, you know, you go somewhere and one day there's a building and the next day it might not be there because there's been an earthquake. It's implausible. Did, you, did you really say that to MI5? I'm not sure. I mean, I can certainly give you the addresses, but whether you'd be able to contact anyone there, I don't really know. Did you give them any addresses? Yeah, I just made them up. I just got a map and just like picked a street that sounded vaguely like it might have houses on it and wrote a number down and looked at the format of... It's terrible. I'm sounding really... <laughs> yeah, so that was the kind of final... You know, I didn't hear from them after that. So you didn't, obviously... Didn't, no, obviously not. I didn't get a job with MI5. No. Helen Keane. I thought this was going to be a programme about pride in our work but it's turned out to be about something else. We anxiety sufferers work ourselves into frenzies about stupid things that don't matter. What-if scenarios that will never come to pass. People with OCD fiddle with the light because they're worried it's faulty and they fiddle so habitually they break the light. By the time my neighbour Sam finally does ask me what I do, he's so sick of my weirdness, he doesn't really care about the answer. Nowadays, I don't see him much at all. If we spot each other, we wave. Sometimes we don't even wave. John Ronson, the producer, was Lucy Green.